several years ago on New Year's Eve, I did a thought experiment where I tried to come up with 10 different interesting alternative life trajectories that I might pursue in the future. So these were things like I could go back to school and get a degree in something where I might actually make money or I could return to acting or theater or I could quit filmmaking and become a hippie or I could go into advertising full time or I could join the family business, which is construction. But one of the most interesting ideas I had was the idea of visiting a different city each month for an entire year and basically traveling the world working remotely. Getting Discomfortable with Remote Year Something that you probably don't know about me is that I make money by ghostwriting which is a job that's sort of not supposed to exist. It actually took me a couple of years of ghostwriting to realize that I work remotely. This means that I can essentially work from anywhere. You know, I worked from home and from cafes, and I started to be like, wait, why am I always in Toronto working at home? Why don't I go to interesting places in the world? But I just didn't think that it was actually realistic because, well, I I was renting an apartment and it was full of furniture and full of stuff. And and I had a boyfriend also and I had all these friends and I couldn't just pick up and leave. Uh, You know, what what would become of my life? But deep down, it was more than that. It was sort of like... You're, you're just not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to travel all the time. You're not allowed to go to interesting places. You're not allowed to turn your life into an adventure. So I just sort of put that list of alternative life ideas aside and went on with my boring Toronto life. I mean, it wasn't that boring. But then one day I was scrolling through Instagram and I saw an advertisement for a program called Remote Year. And it immediately caught my eye because I was like, hey, that sort of sounds like the year I planned in my New Year's resolutions. This was like a few months later, maybe in March. And I clicked on the link and I started reading about this program called Remote Year. And it was basically exactly what I had envisioned that night. It's a program where you pay Remote Year and they put you on an itinerary that goes to a different city each month for an entire year with 50 other remote workers. In fact, Remote Year was so similar to what I had written that fateful night that I started to wonder if it was one of the situations where my phone was secretly reading my notes and sending it to advertisers so they knew exactly what to market to me. And still, even though it was pretty much exactly what I wanted to do, I still had all the same barriers or roadblocks as I did before. You know, I I couldn't just up and leave. You know, you're you're just not allowed to do that. But then a year went by, and over the course of that year, a bunch of things happened. One of my close friends passed away. My relationship basically fell apart, and my career seemed to be going nowhere fast. And pretty much the day after my boyfriend and I broke up, I went online and I applied for Remote Year. 
Of course, then my boyfriend and I got back together, and I had heard online that something like twenty to thirty thousand people apply for remote year every year. So I was like, I probably won't get it. You have to like write essays, and it's you know it's really difficult to get into. So whatever, okay, I'll just I'll go back to my old life. But then I got an interview, and then I got another interview, and then I got another interview, and before I knew it, I got accepted. One thing I should say at this point is that remote year seemed really elite and hard to get into from my perspective back then. But now that I've done it, I realize that that's not the case at all. The reason so many people apply to remote year is because they think that remote year pays you to travel the world. Like remote years, some crazy, too good to be true travel company that just wants to pay people to fly around. That's not how remote year works. You pay them every month. When I did remote year, it was two thousand dollars a month, and that covers your accommodation, your travel, and an office in each city, so that you can do whatever remote work it is that you do. So, in those first early years of remote year, so many of the people who applied didn't understand what it was and weren't actually eligible. However, if you actually have a remote job and you can work anywhere. Then you are almost certainly going to be a shoe-in for remote year because that's exactly what they're looking for. There are certainly cheaper ways to travel, but when you think of the amount of work it would take logistically to plan an entire year where you move to a different city every month, and you need a new co-working space every month, and you need internet every month, and you need to make sure that you have a good house, and you need to be in a good area, and you want to be safe, and you also want to have people around that you can socialize with. Remote year just makes all of that so simple, and it's just—it's a one-stop shop where everything that you could possibly want is pretty much taken care of for you from the beginning. They do various different itineraries, and the one I chose was six months in Europe and then six months in South America. And I think I got accepted into remote year maybe in December, and I decided to take an itinerary that left at the beginning of March the next year. So I basically had maybe a little over two months to get ready. Leading up to remote year for me was extremely nerve-wracking because they had only really existed for a year, maybe two, at that point, and I, I literally had to go online and do a bunch of research just to make sure that they actually were a real company that actually existed and actually took people out into the world. I sent some messages to a few people that had done remote year, and I read a bunch of blog posts about it and. It was it was quite a new idea at that time. Now there are tons of different companies popping up that do variations on what Remote Year does, and it seems like every other person I talk to is interested in or transitioning into working remotely. So it seems like it's definitely a wave of the future where people are going to start working independently of location online as much as possible. I should also note that I heard about Remote Year before I had my quote-unquote shame breakthrough, which you can hear more about in my shame series. And there's no question that I probably wouldn't have done Remote Year before that. I just had this conditioned notion that life had to be a certain way, and you just couldn't take off and do whatever you wanted. But then I realized that all of that was just reinforced by shame. And that actually we can live whatever life we want, and it's up to us, not up to other people, to decide what that is. 
So there were a number of things that set it into motion, but having had a shame breakthrough basically freed me up psychologically to finally go through with it. My name is Justin. I am 30 years old. I am from Phoenix, Arizona, and I am an animator and editor. And as kind of a side hustle, I have a travel vlog that I started at the beginning of remote year. And if you want to check out kind of the, the program from a participant's perspective, I kind of document all of that in the travel vlog. So you can search Justin Poor, P-O-O-R-E, on YouTube, and it should pop up. As someone who works themselves and does animation and video stuff, it is quite lonely and uh, it's a job you do by yourself. And if you're interacting with clients, it's usually over the phone or the internet. Uh, So I was in my pajamas doing work and I kind of saw this future of me turning 40 and having no friends and not having any social circle. And so I decided, you know, let's change that and get out in the world and out of my pajamas. And uh, remote year was was part of that. And so the community for me was a huge part of the whole experience and something that I thought was the most valuable piece of it. As I was preparing to leave for remote year, uh, I started packing everything I needed and getting rid of stuff I didn't need. And everything I was unsure of, or I thought, oh, I'm definitely going to need this later when I get back. I put into this huge storage unit, like unnecessarily huge, like two car garage size, huge storage unit. And um, I think this is what a lot of people do. They get a storage unit, put everything in there, and then they go off and travel. And the more I traveled, the more I hated that storage unit. It was just this thing I was paying for that I didn't need. And the longer I traveled, the more I realized that I didn't want any of that stuff, clothes, furniture, beds, like all these things that like these worldly possessions that I knew I didn't want or need. And um, the first thing I did when I got back was I got rid of all of that. Didn't try to sell it. I just gave it all away. But it was just like this liberating experience of ridding myself of stuff. I think it gave me a clearer view of what I want for my life uh, in terms of career and then also socially. I think socially it makes me realize that I want to be around people as much as possible, whether that's travel or or back home. And then also career-wise, I think it makes me want to look for a career that allows me freedom. Remote Year has itineraries that go to all different parts of the world. But I chose an itinerary because it had the least amount of time difference with the work I had to do for clients in Toronto. This itinerary began in March of 2017 in Split in Croatia. Then in April, we went to Prague. In May, we went to Lisbon. In June, we were in Sofia, Bulgaria. In July, we were in Belgrade in Serbia. And then in August, we were in Valencia in Spain. Then we flew to South America, and we spent September in Buenos Aires in Argentina. In October, we were in a smaller town in Argentina called Cordoba. In November, we went to Lima in Peru. In December, we were in Medellin in Colombia. In January, we were in Bogota. And in February, we did our final month in Mexico City. Each month, Remote Year puts you in different groupings of people to live with. Prior to remote year, I always assumed that I enjoyed living alone. But in my very first month in Croatia, they threw me into a house with three other guys, complete strangers at that time, 
And I gradually discovered that I actually really enjoyed living with people, the more the merrier, in fact. Knowing that I only had to live with any given roommate for a month made it kind of exciting. It made it kind of an interesting challenge to see what it was like to live with various different people. The apartments were very different every month. In my first month in Croatia, I was in probably one of the nicest apartments in the program, this palatial four-bedroom, actually five-bedroom condo overlooking the ocean. But then in Prague, I was in a charmingly rustic three-bedroom with a different guy and a girl in an apartment building that was right next door to the famous baby tower. Or anyway, that's what we called it. It's this giant kind of 50s futurist TV tower, which for some reason has these sculptures of babies crawling up it. In Lisbon, I was in another three-bedroom with two different women in the Barrio Alto district, which is an extremely lively, fun, and steep area of the city that you can't even access by car. You had to drop us off a block away, and then we had to carry our bags up the most epic flight of ancient European stairs to get to our apartment. And once we got to our apartment, you then had to carry your bag up several flights of rickety European wooden staircases to get to our top floor. In Bulgaria, my roommate decided to take that month off of remote year, which is a thing you can do. You can take a month off and come back. So I had this great apartment in downtown Sofia all to myself. But then, about halfway through the month, my roommate from Prague decided that he didn't really like his apartment across town, so he moved in with me, which is another thing that you can do, apparently. Or anyway, we did. In Serbia, I lived in an old Soviet-style building with two girls and a guy, and as always tends to happen when you get a new apartment, you have to do some sort of drawing of straws or negotiating to figure out who's going to get the good room and who's going to get the bad room. And I remember that month I happened to get the bad room. So your living accommodations are extremely varied. Sometimes it's a beautiful apartment. Sometimes it's kind of a crummy apartment. But it was always only for a month. And I found that no matter what it was, within a couple of days I had acclimatized and I felt perfectly at home. If you want to hear more about my routine of how to create a feeling of at-homeness wherever I was, you can listen to my episode called The AJ Tax. Most of the apartments were within about a 20-minute walk of each other, usually in one or two of the cooler neighborhoods of that particular city. And another thing that Remote Year hooks you up with is a co-working space to work at for the month. Like the apartments, the co-working spaces also varied a lot by city. The first month in Croatia, Remote Year actually created their own co-working space. So it's a very purpose-driven space that works well for Remote Year. But then when we got to Prague, we were in a completely different co-working space with a completely different vibe, different rules, and a ton of locals working there. Every city you go to has at least two, sometimes three, dedicated remote year staff who organize everything about your stay in that city. One person is generally the operations manager. They find you your apartment and your co-working space, and they're the person that you call when you have a plumbing issue or your stove doesn't work or any, anything that goes wrong with your apartment or your co-working space. You have a dedicated person that you can call who speaks your language, who knows the city, who also speaks the local language, and they can basically problem-solve anything for you. 
That's one of the intangible perks of remote year. You could certainly go traveling to all these different cities much more cheaply on your own. But the fact that you have this person that you know in each city who is basically a fixer is such a game changer. You never need to worry. You never need to deal with your landlord directly. There's always someone who takes care of pretty much anything. There's, there's always at least two people in every city whose job it is to make sure that you are happy at all times, that you are safe, that you are looked after, that you are comfortable. In addition to that, we also traveled with two dedicated program leaders. Anastasia and Sarah were there with us for the entire year, and they basically manage everything. They they make sure that you have a ride to the airport. They make sure that you're at places on time. They make sure that you get to your house. They have a multitude of responsibilities throughout the year, but perhaps the most important of all is community building. One of the biggest takeaways I got from remote year was the importance of community. Pretty much everyone who does remote year will agree that the best part of the year are the people you meet and the connections you make, especially the people that you are traveling with. I mean, these are 50 strangers from all around the world. There were mostly Americans, but there were quite a few Canadians as well as Australians. We even had a couple Brits. We had somebody from Mexico, a couple people from India. We had a Bulgarian. We had a really interesting group ranging in age from about 21 to 42. And everybody had completely different jobs. There were graphic designers. There were writers. There were coders. There was even a voiceover artist who would record audio commercials in each apartment with the very same microphone that I am using right now. He taught me how to do this podcast. There are video makers. There are entrepreneurs. There are people working for startups. You name it. It's a really interesting group. So our program leaders and Remote Year as a platform puts so much effort into helping build that community. It comes in the form of constant social planning. For example, they do this thing called cocktail roulette, where they basically draw your names out of a hat into small groups so that you are forced to go off and have a drink with a random assortment of people from your program. We also had weekly town halls at which we would discuss any issues that we had, upcoming plans, events. We did these junctions every month where we would all meet up and do something that was supposed to integrate with the community. We also had a program called Positive Impact, where each new city we went to, we found a volunteer organization that we could help to give back to the community that we were living in that month. Every city had a welcome event where the local team would introduce themselves, teach us some of the language, what to look out for in terms of safety in each city and how to use the metro and all all the things that you would know to kind of survive for that month. And then at the end of each month, we would always have a farewell party where we would have some kind of theme and there would usually be food and we would invite local friends and just sort of celebrate the city and say goodbye. And then there's also a program called Tracks, which are basically field trips. You usually do about three a month, and there's different groupings that you can kind of choose from. So you might do a tour of an art gallery or go to a local brewery or you might watch a local film or you might interview a local historian or you might go hiking in the mountains or climbing through caves or all number of different field trip events that you can take part in, in various groupings of people from your program. And then there's also extra events that you can buy into, like a wine tour or a boat trip or something like that. 
So even if you're having an extremely busy or antisocial work month, you always know that with tracks and various events, you will be both social and you will get at least some degree of the tourist experience in that city. My name is Deborah. I'm 42. I am from London, and I'm a freelance insight consultant. When I first decided that I was going to apply for a remote year, I didn't tell anyone really.、Um, I just did it, and then I was part the way through the application process. And my sister sent me a message on Facebook. And it just was well. There wasn't a message actually. It was just a link to Remote Year, and I thought this is strange because I hadn't told her and I hadn't told my parents. So after I'd received this link from her on Facebook and with no message, I sent her back one saying, "Why did you send this to me?" And she said, "Oh, I just thought it looked right up your street." And I said, "Well, that's funny because I've got my interview tomorrow." She was like, "What?" I was like, yeah, I've already applied. I've got my interview tomorrow, so that was kind of weird. And I think the hardest part for me was the work side of things because a lot of the research that I do is face to face. It's interviewing people, running workshops, discussion groups,、um, that sort of thing.、Um, it doesn't automatically lend itself to remote working. And as a freelancer, I have to get my own work, so I had to find new clients and more remote work. So online communities, Skype interviews, that sort of thing. But not everybody does that, so. Yeah, that wasn't too easy. Of course, I needed money to live, and whilst I'd kind of saved because I knew this would be the case, I wasn't able to do everything I wanted to do. And sometimes, yeah, did have to say no to stuff. There was a little bit of, you know, am I missing out on something? But I just had to kind of deal with that in the end. And it's just one day or one evening, and it's not going to affect my whole year if I don't do something. It was quite overwhelming to start with because there are just so many new people. You know, you've got the whole year, but you know it does feel sort of like there's an urge to establish connections quite quickly or find out who your people are going to be quite quickly.、Um, and I held back from that a little bit because I wanted to really, you know, find out who I kind of naturally felt comfortable with and wanted to be around and that sort of thing. So there was a lot of sort of managing my own emotions. <laughs> And、uh, just I don't know, sitting back a little bit and sort of taking my time to get fully involved. Throughout the year, there's a really interesting kind of social flux that happens. At the beginning, all of the twenty-year-olds kind of hung out together, and then all of the thirty-plus-year-olds would hang out together, and it was a very distinct group based on age. The twenty-year-olds liked to party more, and the thirty-year-olds. Also, kind of like to party, but in different ways. But by the end of the year, it all got completely mixed up, and none of the obvious cliques existed anymore. And you had forty-year-olds hanging out with twenty-year-olds. Basically, by the end of the year, you love all fifty people. There, there's very few people in the program that I felt I didn't connect with, and even if I didn't, I learned to like and respect them for who they were. And I felt like every single person contributed to the group in their own way, and it just wouldn't have been the same without them, for better or for worse. 
And since I came out of the program having had such an exciting and positive experience, I really wouldn't want to have changed a single person. I don't want to make it sound like remote year is one big party, but if you want it to be one big party, it can be one big party. And if you don't want it to be one big party, there's always someone working. In fact, because we had some Australians and people from various different time zones, pretty much any time you could go to the workspace and there would be someone from your group there working. So it was really just about overcoming the FOMO that you would have because at any given time, there was always someone doing something really exciting. There was someone going on a really cool side trip to Dubrovnik. There was someone going on a boat trip. There was someone going to a music festival. There was someone going out for dinner. So it was really up to your own ability to self-organize and self-motivate such that you could get your work done when you needed to and then go out and enjoy the city when you didn't need to work. FOMO, if you don't know, stands for the fear of missing out. And it's that feeling you have when all your friends are going off to do something exciting and you can't go because you have a deadline. On remote year, FOMO is very real because some people have a lot more free time. In fact, one person in our group didn't have a job at all. Some people had to work their asses off to afford the trip. So it was a very interesting mix, and you just couldn't always keep up. I remember in the first month in Croatia, it was almost like I was back in high school again. I actually didn't even recognize myself. I became so desperate to socialize, to party, to go drinking. I just wanted to try to connect with everyone all the time. And any time I thought other people were going out and connecting without me, I was like, oh no, I need to get out there. I'm not going to have any friends. The first month to me was like a sprint of, of connection making. And I just was up and game for anything. And then I remember that by the end of the month, in Croatia, we all met up to dive into the Adriatic, which was extremely cold in March, but the weather was beautiful and it was exciting. So I went along with it. And one of our program leaders, Anastasia, said that we should jump into the water with a kind of intention for where we wanted to go personally in month two in Prague. And this is one of the nice things about remote year. Because it has these really distinct months in different cities, you really do have a kind of interesting conception of time. It both feels extremely clear and linear because you're like, oh, where was I in June? Oh, right, I was in this city that whole time. So in a way, with all these different destinations packed into one year, time appears to move very quickly. There's just so much going on and so much more stimulus than in your normal life where you're always in one city. But at the same time, because you are surrounded by these 50 people day in and day out, like it's extremely rare that you would even go one day without seeing at least someone from your group. And because you spend an inordinate amount of time with these people, like more than you would in any other circumstance, time appears to move very slowly at the same time because it feels like surely I have known these people for more than three months. It feels like I've known them forever. But at the same time, wow, these three months have gone by quickly. I can't believe we've been to Croatia, Prague, and Lisbon. Anyway, my point was, standing on this dock on the Adriatic Sea at the end of our first month in Croatia, 
I was like, who am I? Why am I putting so much energy into trying to befriend everyone? This is like high school AJ. I thought I had gotten over this, which, okay, now I'm going to do another aside. You think in your regular life that you're mature and that you've learned how to deal with people and, you know, you might feel comfortable and adult. But then as soon as you go on a remote year, all of these old issues that you think you've dealt with kind of reemerge. And it just goes to show that it, it's not that you've gotten over trying to be popular in high school. It's that you're just not in that setting anymore. And you kind of now have a stable group of friends who you don't need to try to like people please and win over. So for me, it was discovering that that urge, that, that high school urge to be popular was just sort of lingering under the surface of my normal life. And I hadn't really dealt with it so much as gotten over it in one specific circumstance my life in Toronto. But here I was with a whole new group of people. And I realized that anytime I meet a whole new group of people, I am going to be susceptible to trying to people please and make sure that they like me as quickly as possible. Of course, I think having done remote year, I will now be slightly better at that. And every time I meet a new large group of people, I will get better and better at saying, AJ, okay, let's go back to our values. We don't need to be friends with everyone. We want to be our authentic self. So let's focus on that. And it gets easier the more practice you have. Anyway, I'm standing on this dock over the Adriatic Sea. And I made the intention that in Prague, in month two, it wouldn't be about trying to win everyone over socially and have everyone like me. I would take a month more to myself and figure out who am I on this trip and what do I want to get out of it and, and who do I want to be? And in Prague, that's exactly what I did. I was a lot less social, not in a conspicuous, reclusive way. I was just a lot more intentional about when I actually wanted to go out and when I wanted to stay home and relax, which is, again, because of FOMO, a difficult thing to do sometimes. The shadow side of all of this connecting and community building is that there's a really strong urge to gossip. You are trying to make sense of this crazy experience and you kind of want to vent to someone, but you can't really vent to your friends back home because they have no idea what you're going through. And frankly, they don't really want to hear about it. They're like, oh, oh, you're having social angst on your magical trip around the world. I feel so bad for you. They just, they just don't get what you're going through. And they don't know the people that you're with, so they don't really want to hear you vent about your annoying roommate because they're like, I don't know this person. <laughs> Leave me alone. But at the same time, the only people who do understand what you're going through are the people that you are going through it with. So once you start gossiping about one of them, it creates this big internal conflict where I'm gossiping about my roommate one month to a person who then has to live with that person two months later. And the urge to use gossip to hotwire connection, as Brene Brown would say, is always there. You know, you're going for drinks with these people and you're like, ah, what can I say that we can really bond over? I know, why don't I trash this obviously annoying person? Or why don't I complain about my roommate or about the program itself? 
it's very easy to try to use something kind of scandalous to create connection, but then it always turns around very quickly to bite you in the ass because the people who you've used gossip to connect with are then going to use that same gossip to connect with someone else, and it's just going to go around in a circle till it gets back to everyone that everyone has been gossiping about everyone. And it makes sense. It's perfectly natural. We're all just trying to make connections and deal with the crazy situations we're going through, and we're trying to do those things at once with the same people in what is actually a fairly small group—just fifty people. It sounds like a lot, but when you're spending a year with them, it's not. So over the first several months, this gossipy pattern kind of had flare-ups and was building. And around month five was probably the boiling point in Serbia, literally because it was so hot, where there was a lot of bad blood that needed to be worked through. One of the things that they tell you at the very beginning of a remote year is that there is a kind of general pattern to how you feel over the year. It starts out kind of on a high. You're on this exciting new adventure, and it goes up for maybe the first two or three months. But then you start to get into the homesickness and the gossip, and the novelty is starting to wear off. So your happiness level starts to go down, and it reaches its valley around the five, six month point, where you're kind of sick of it all, and you're just homesick, and you're. You're you feel totally crazy because you don't feel like you exist anywhere. You don't have a home. You don't know what your life is. It's like this existential crisis. But then, from there, it gradually starts to climb back up again as you start to work through the gossip, start to make real connections, start to kind of figure out who you are in this new life. And it actually climbs and climbs and climbs and peaks again right at the end of the program, even higher than it was at the beginning. So you know maybe this is just a marketing ploy to get people not to drop out when they're feeling shitty in month three. But I found it to be absolutely true, both for me and watching the dynamics of the group in general. Another concept that Remote Year talked about a lot, which again you could see in a cynical light, but actually was also just. A great way to live life is the idea of the three levels of fun. The first level of fun is fun that you expect to have. You know, you're going out dancing and you're expecting to enjoy dancing. That's level one fun. Level two fun is fun that you didn't expect to have. You go out dancing, and then you run into this guy that you met in Berlin years ago, and you can't believe that he happens to be in Lisbon at the same time as you. And all of your friends intermingle, and it's so fun and so surprising. That is a true example of level two fun. Level three fun is when you're not having fun at all. When there is a complete disaster and all of your plans go awry, and you think you're never going to make it home again, and it's this like complete clusterfuck, and somehow you keep a positive attitude and you work through it, and and in the end, everything works out, and you realize that there's a certain kind of perverse fun to be had in going through a crazy experience and surviving it. Sometimes that fun doesn't become clear until you're safely at home afterwards, but sometimes it kind of peaks right in the middle, where you're like, you know what, this is crazy, but I'm kind of enjoying how crazy it is, and I'm sure we're going to get through it. So let's just enjoy the craziness while it happens. That is level three fun, 
And it's the kind of thing that actually didn't happen that often on remote year. We always wanted to have level three fun. It was a great primer. But generally speaking, the trip went really well. There, there were no giant disasters. There, there were no fatalities. You know, some people got robbed and, and had stuff stolen from them. And some people had medical issues, of course. You know, there were definitely ups and downs. There were dramas and romances gone awry. There's a lot of that. But ultimately, you come away feeling like you've just had the most amazing kind of summer camp experience. It really did feel after 12 months as it was finally coming to an end, like I was 12 years old again and just leaving summer camp with all the kind of like drama and magic of a tweenage summer camp romance and adventure rolled into one. And you just feel kind of starry-eyed and full of wonder and magic. And that's kind of an incredible feeling to have at 38 years old. That's a sort of feeling that you don't think you get to have anymore. But on remote year, that's basically what I experienced. Since remote year has ended, I've been appreciating it even more than ever. I'm realizing how important building community is and how important having a community was now that I'm done remote year and traveling mostly on my own. It makes me think about my micro-ideologies like no one belongs here more than you and these are my people, which you can listen to in the episode about spontaneity. And I'm just constantly trying to recreate that sense of community everywhere I go, even with strangers, with new people I meet, with old friends. I really just value community and I see how important it is to nurture it consciously, to make an effort. The way Remote Year had all of these specific plans like cocktail roulette and town hall meetings, all of that was geared very consciously to build community. And I want to adopt that into my regular life so that everywhere I go, I am always consciously, intentionally building and nurturing community with everyone because that's what makes life very connected and fun and meaningful and cozy and comfortable. Another interesting psychological phenomenon about the remote year year is that it has such purpose. I mean, it's right there in the title, remote year. You know it's going to be a year long and you know you're going to be remote and you have your itinerary completely laid out in advance and you you basically your whole year is about doing this specific trip and trying to survive it and enjoy it. You don't think as much about what's my purpose in life, where am I going? You're like, my purpose is to get through remote year and I know exactly where I'm going. I'm going to Serbia next and then I'm going to Valencia, etc., etc., It really created this kind of container for the year where everything made sense, everything had a kind of meaning, drive, and purpose, and my existential angst was gone, which was very rare for me. And I'm starting to think, post-remote year, how can I kind of brand or conceptualize my year such that it has that same container? And after remote year ended, I actually went to Costa Rica with six or seven other remotes to kind of decompress. And we all lived in a big house together. I've talked about this before in the episode about the AJ tax. And as I was there, I was starting to realize how my next year didn't seem nearly as purposeful or, or as meaningful because it didn't have a name. 
And I was trying to explain this to my fellow remotes in Costa Rica. And I was like, you know, if, what if we could brand this coming year? What if, what if we could give it a name so that it had purpose built into it? And everyone was like, I don't know, like, what would you call it? What do you mean? And I was like, I don't know. Like, you know, like, what if it was called something like the, the year of the golden sword? You know, so it's right there in the name. It's got a year and it's about the golden sword, whatever that is. And everyone was like, I think that's the name. I think this is the year of the golden sword. And what started as a kind of spontaneous joke began to develop into a very real and surprisingly useful name for the year, the year of the golden sword. Each person took the time to decide what the golden sword represented to them. And then we ended up having this kind of initiation ceremony on the beach in Costa Rica where we wrote down a bunch of facts about ourselves that were true last year but are no longer true this year. And we burnt them in this hilarious but strangely serious ceremony. And then we all talked about our intentions for the new year and our new selves. And then we ran into the water and were reborn. This was also mixed with some weird chanting about the year of the golden sword and various crystals that we found in the sand and other hilarious hijinks that we both laughed at as we were doing it and yet appreciated the value of at the same time. One of my big goals for the year of the golden sword was to do this podcast. And now that I am doing it, I'm starting to feel more of that sense of purpose and meaning that I lost when Remote Year ended. 